Conspirators don't have to sit in the same room, talk to each other, or even know each other. The unearned awarding of special privileges usually results in a concerted, fundamental effort to retain and amass ill-gotten gains above the losses of everyone else. This sort of lazy conspiracy happens all the time. The Stock Act, signed in 2012, explicitly states that if federal employees use non-public information for private profit, they are breaking a federal law. Before 2012, insider trading among lawmakers was more of a fuzzy guideline. Now, with the Stock Act, it is an explicitly fuzzy guideline. It specifies that government employees must not engage in insider trading and any securities trading, like with stocks or bonds, valued over $1,000, must be reported within 30 to 45 days depending on their position. In 19 months, from 2020 to 2021, 52 members of Congress and 182 staffers have violated the Stock Act. A big part of the problem is that, when the Stock Act is violated by congressional employees, nobody does anything. Not for any good reason. The excuses given by congressional employees are that they weren't told about the trades in time, they forgot, or misunderstood the deadlines. They were parents or they didn't know how to do it. The first offense against the Stock Act should result in a fine of $200. A penalty waiver may excuse the offender, but should only be awarded in the event of, quote, unusual hardship, end quote. It does not excuse forgetting or pointing fingers at somebody else, or not knowing how to do it. But, unfortunately, the Senate Select Committee on Ethics that is supposed to be enforcing this law is not. There is no public disclosure, and, as it turns out, little and sometimes no private disclosure either of the penalties for non-reporting by congressional employees. Fines are easily avoided, and, quote, unusual hardship, end quote, is granted to forgetful Phyllis's as it was for Maria McElwain, for 18 unreported trades between the value of $32,000 and $300,000, who did not pay a fine and received a penalty waiver because she said that it was her first mistake and it wouldn't happen again. After not reporting her securities trading 18 times in one year, but 19 times? Heavens forbid. Nobody seems to care that hundreds of government workers are breaking a federal law. As Walter Schaub says, quote, Not caring about ethics to know the rules isn't unusual hardship. In fact, it's anything but unusual in Congress. End quote. Regardless of how late a federal employee is, how many trades they made, or how much they invested, first-time offenders receive either a $200 fine, a penalty waiver, or nothing at all. Offenders often suffer no consequences. Gary Anders, a staff director, quote, didn't know one of his stock trade disclosures was more than a year late, end quote, until a reporter asked him about it, and was completely unpenalized. Maybe I'm not well-traveled, or maybe it's because senators and congresspeople are part of a national aristocracy, but I haven't heard of any average citizens being excused from not showing up to court or not paying a parking ticket because they forgot. I don't know a single person who received a penalty waiver because 
After all, nobody told them they couldn't drive over a double yellow line. A counsel from the Office of Congressional Ethics says that, quote, The committee does not look for late filings. There is no notification. If you are late, you actually have to start making a bunch of calls to figure out how to pay the fine. The instructions are not on the Ethics Committee's site. This entirely depends on the honor system. The honor system, for the regulatory oversight of the well-connected upper crust tracking and disclosing their personal finances, is clearly not working. According to the Deputy Chief Counsel at the Office of Congressional Ethics, quote, We were not looking into it. There was just nobody paying attention to it. No one was filing complaints. When you have the Ethics Committee, who has failed to go after these blatant violations, it sends a message that anything goes. End quote. Lawmakers Austin Scott, Mo Brooks, and Marjorie Green, who spoke out against vaccine mandates, still made sure to invest tens of thousands of dollars each into vaccine manufacturers like Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer in early 2020. Dozens of lawmakers publicly against pollution, the detrimental effects of the media, against smoking, and who decide governmental regulations on cryptocurrency, invest in fossil fuels, social media companies, tobacco companies, and cryptocurrencies. Most members of Congress do not have their assets in what's known as a qualified blind trust, where their assets can be managed by an independent third party to ensure ethical investing. Lobbying is another huge problem. Pfizer lobbyists contributed over $4 million and Johnson & Johnson over $2 million to Democratic and Republican political candidates and committees in 2020 alone. But that number is closer to $20 million in total lobbying efforts against the American government. Quick clarification, the total I mentioned only applies to those two companies. The entire lobbying spending in the United States against the government to influence policies and the creation of favorable laws for corporations? About $3.5 billion. Each year. Seems weird that donating money to lawmakers to influence their policy decisions is legal in the United States, doesn't it? Some might call this form of normalized and legalized bribery undemocratic. The people that are supposed to be keeping federal employees' personal finances ethical are the people being paid by lobbyists not to worry about lobbyists. At least 15 federal lawmakers working on U.S. defense policy are involved in trading securities of Raytheon, General Electric, Lockheed Martin, and other defense company behemoths. In the embarrassing realm of American education, with the United States ranking below most other first-world countries, resulting in U.S. students falling far behind in math, ranked 38th of 69 countries, reading, ranked 27th, and science, ranked 19th, plus being saddled with debt that takes decades to pay off, hundreds of congressional aides have ways to pay off their student debts that others don't. Under public service loan forgiveness, if a federal employee makes qualifying student debt payments for 10 years, their remaining balance is forgiven, and they can stop paying altogether. The average student debt payoff time is 20 years, so these lucky bucks get to save at least a decade's worth of debt payment. Because you're paying for it. House and Senate staffers can also each receive $80,000 and $40,000, respectively 
to help pay off their student debt. Those grants to staffers are paid for with American tax dollars. While these options have strings, one's debt repayment subsidized by somebody else's payments is a pretty good deal. Whose payments? Yours, and mine, and any other American paying taxes. The federal employees receiving this debt relief must stay at their job for 10 years and must make continual qualifying payments. But after that, and even before that for the in-house $40,000 and $80,000 debt relief, American taxpayers subsidize government employees. Then there's real estate. At least 238 federal lawmakers and 200 congressional staffers influencing real estate laws are landlords themselves, like the Empire State Building, operated by the wife of Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, earning the Real Estate Investment Trust about a million dollars a year. She holds another 43 real estate investments as well, including properties in France, Spain, and England, that are earning interest that Senator Blumenthal can enjoy while deciding which laws he should vote for to regulate U.S. landowners, like his wife, who owns the Empire State Building. He regulates laws like tax credits, which tenants of the Empire State Building receive and pay to the trust who owns it. The Empire State Building, by which I mean the group of wealthy politicians and aristocrats that own the Empire State Building, also receive federal tax incentives to, quote, restore historic buildings, end quote. Federal tax incentives? Who pays for that? Oh, right, you. Luckily, members of Congress are not allowed to earn more than $25,595 in income outside their federal salaries. Well, except from rental properties, like the $1 million, 40 times over the legal limit, brought in by the Empire State Building. Oh, and except for stocks, like the tens of thousands of dollars made by numerous members of Congress trading in defense or pharmaceutical securities just last year. Oh, and book deals, like the $1.8 million earned in just 2020 by 26 members of Congress. Maybe we want the senators we support and like to hear from to write books so we can better understand their policies and the reasonings behind them. Maybe. And maybe we want the congressional members we literally pay the salary of to own 100-story buildings that take in hundreds of thousands of dollars while the lawmakers sit in their office and decide on the real estate laws that determine the amount of income they receive from those properties. Well. No, we probably really don't want that. The people making the laws in the United States, a country of backrubbing, insider trading, and federal corruption, need strict and enforceable regulatory oversight regarding how exactly they are allowed to profit and how they are limited from profiting off of the laws they pass. As it is, federal lawmakers are abusing their authority and profiting financially from that abuse. Our goal should be to eliminate these conflicts of interest, so that when the average American pays off their student debt, when they rent a house, or when they pay taxes, they are not subsidizing a more privileged class of Americans who determine their own profit guidelines and suffer no repercussions for taking advantage of the power they have 
to benefit themselves at the expense of 300 million Americans. <laughs>